Now, our world is filled with polarizing people. Polarizing people. There's people you love or you hate, right? And one thing I did this week just for fun is I Googled uh, most polarizing people in our country, and I saw the different lists that people had come up with. And a lot of the people were on numerous lists, and so I'll give you just a few. Uh, Tom Brady was on many people's lists of a polarizing person. Some people love Tom Brady, other people hate Tom Brady. Uh, by the way, people who love Tom Brady, you're called winners. People who hate Tom Brady, you're called losers. Uh, but you love him or hate him, Tom Brady. He's just, I mean, he's one of those guys. He's a polarizing guy. Uh, another person on the list uh, was Elon Musk. Uh, ooh, that one didn't get as much laughter. <laughs> uh, some people love Elon Musk. Some people hate him. Some people drive his cars. Other people, now everybody's on Twitter. He owns Tesla and Twitter. I mean, this guy's doing something right, I guess, by the world's standards. But uh, you either love Elon Musk or you hate him, right? Uh, he's one of those polarizing people. Now, not surprising, on these lists of the most polarizing people were the names of many, many, many politicians. And I'm not going to name any names here because I don't want to start a riot here at Grace Bible Church this morning. Uh, but politicians are very polarizing people. You love them or you hate them, depending on which side of the aisle you're on. But as I looked at list after list of polarizing people, there's one name that didn't make anybody's list, and yet I think he is the most polarizing person the world has ever seen. It's Jesus. In fact, the entire human race is going to be divided over the question of what you do with him. Do you love him or do you hate him? Uh, Jesus, indeed, is the most polarizing person that the world has ever seen. And here in John chapter 15, as we continue this series of the Upper Room Discourse, really looking into this question of what does it mean to follow Jesus in a fallen world, Jesus here in our passage this morning, he really draws a line in the sand. And he tells us as his followers that we can expect two things, both love and hate. He tells us in our first section this morning that we are to love one another as he has loved us. And in the second section this morning, he tells us that the world is going to hate you because it, it, because it also has hated him. See, Jesus, when you really step back and think about it, is the most polarizing person that the world has ever seen. By the way, uh, if you came to Grace Bible Church this morning expecting to hear a real feel-good Christmas message, this is not it, right? It's not too late. If you want to head to the nearest exit, you can probably catch a Joel Osteen sermon streaming on your way out. But this is not going to be a real encouraging message. Um, that got some laughter. Wow, okay. Um, <laughs> Here's what we're going to take a look at this morning. It is a bit of a depressing message, but that's okay. Again, first section on your outline, we're going to see Jesus gives this command. Once again, we've seen it before. He's going to say, I want you to love one another as I have loved you. Because, number two on your outline, the world is going to hate you like it's hated me. And then the third thing we're gonna do on your outline there, we're gonna do something a little unique, a little different. We're gonna see how this love and hate dynamic plays out 
in the early church, in the book of Acts and beyond, and see that this love and hate dynamic really is nothing new to us. So grab your Bibles, let me read for you first. To John chapter 15, I'll read verses 12 through 17, and then we'll dig in. John chapter 15, verses 12 through 17, Jesus says to his disciples, this is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for a slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I've now made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. Did you catch the repetition here? Jesus, as he is literally now hours away from his being betrayed, arrested, tried, and crucified, He's still, even in these last hours, preparing his disciples for the day when he will no longer be by their side. He's still discipling them. He's still teaching them. And the message he's repeating over and over and over again here in the Upper Room Discourse is, I want you to love one another. Remember, flip back to John chapter 13. This is how Jesus' words began in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. It's like Jesus knew that once he leaves, we're gonna need to be reminded over and over again to love one another, right? Because following Jesus in a fallen world is going to come with its fair share of challenges. And so the only way we're gonna get through, the only way we're gonna endure this thing is if we love one another. Again, verses 12 and 13, notice what he says. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another. And then notice he describes that at the end of verse 12, love one another just as I have loved you. And then he defines that even more in verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends, the very thing Jesus is about to do. But the striking thing is that Jesus speaking to his disciples, knowing very well what he was about to endure, he turns to his disciples and reminds them again, I want you to love one another just as I have loved you, and greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. See, the principle, the idea we see here in these verses is that the love of God for Christians is now to be modeled as the love of God between Christians. The love of God for Christians is also to be the love of God between Christians. And then notice what Jesus says starting in verse 14. He begins to describe this even more. He says to his disciples, you are my friends. He just said, "I'm greater love has no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. And he says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves. 
for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. So Jesus really continues what we saw last week. We saw last week all this language about bearing fruit and bearing much fruit and abiding on the vine, all very relational terms. And here Jesus uses additional relational terms. He uses this contrast between a slave and a friend. He says, you're my friends if you do what I command you. He says, I'm not going to call you slaves. And then notice he says, a slave does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends because I've made, all known, I've made known all things to you, basically. All that I've learned from my father, I've made known to you. So Jesus, using this relational imagery, contrasts a slave and a friend. But what I want you to notice here, this is key. In Jesus' explanation here, the difference between slavery and friendship is not obedience because he expects both. The difference is the slave doesn't understand or doesn't know what his master is doing. The slave simply does what he's told. But Jesus says, you're not a slave, you're a friend, and I've told you everything. All that the Father has made known to me, I've now told to you. In other words, you're an insider. But obedience, notice, is still expected. Even among his friends, Jesus says, verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Now, what does he want us to do? Verse 16, he says, he chose us, appointed us, that we would go and bear fruit and that our fruit would remain. Again, this really links in with what we saw last week, this idea of having the very life of Jesus as we abide on the vine, having the very life of Jesus multiplied in us and through us. And most specifically, what he's referencing here is love. That the love of Jesus would be multiplied in and through us. That the very love of Jesus would shine forth through us. Uh, by the way, there at the end of verse 16, I've addressed this before, but Jesus says, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. I just want to remind you, as we did last week, this does not mean that your every wish is God's command, right? He's not a genie. He doesn't give us whatever we want. We have to understand this in context. This is in context of Jesus saying, I want you to go and bear fruit. I want you to go and love one another. And those are the kinds of prayers here that God the Father answers. Uh, but notice how this section ends, verse 17. It ends just like it began. John chapter 15, verse 17, Jesus says, this I command you, that you love one another. This entire paragraph is framed, if you will, by this command to love one another. It's like Jesus is trying to get something across to us, right? He says, this is my command that you love for one another. The love of God for Christians is now to be the love of God between Christians. On a real obvious level, what this means for you and for me is that loving one another, even people we may not necessarily like, but loving one another is not an option. 
It's a necessity. It's something that should differentiate Christians from the world. Jesus commands us over and over and over again, I want you to love one another just like I loved you because, as we now look at number two on your outline, the world is going to hate you just like it hated Jesus. Let's take a look at number two on your outline. John chapter 15, verses 18 through 25. Jesus says this, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. Verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned, but now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But this they have done to fulfill the word that is written in their law, they hated me without a cause." Notice the contrast between these two sections. The first, first one is really kind of encouraging and uplifting. We feel good. We're to love one another. But then we get the reason why, which is a little depressing. Because the world's going to hate you. The world's going to hate you. Notice again verse 18. Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. There's a couple things I want you to see here. The first is that the word know, K-N-O-W there, can be translated as a command. In other words, Jesus is saying, if the world hates you, you should know that it hated me before it hated you. That hatred from the world should not come as a surprise. We shouldn't be surprised when Christians around the world, even today, Christians all over the world are being persecuted because of their faith in Jesus. This should come as no surprise at all. Jesus says it right here. He says, if the world hated me, you should know that it hated me before it hated you. But the second thing I want you to see here in this verse is that the reason the world hates followers of Jesus is because of Jesus. He says, the world hated me before it hated you. In other words, he is the reason They hate us. The world hates us. Again, Jesus is the most polarizing person that the world has ever seen. People love him or they hate him to the extent that they love his followers or hate his followers. That's really the point of this entire passage. And notice why, verses 19 and 20, Jesus says this. He says, if you were of the world, but you're not, The world would love its own. In other words, the world would love you if you were worldly. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. 
Again, the idea here Jesus is getting at over and over again is that, guess what, everybody? The world is going to hate you because you're not of the world. Again, there's a real relational language that we see here in these verses. We used to belong relationally to the world, this fallen world system where Satan is the prince and the power of the air. But Jesus, notice what he says here, you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. And for this reason, the world hates you because you're a threat. The very way you live and the love you model and show is a threat to this fallen world system in which we live. And Jesus reminds them once again, remember, a slave is not greater than his master. If they hated me, they're going to hate you as well. Jesus really describes here that we're like a foreign entity to this world. We don't belong here. And because of that, the world will hate us. Continuing in verse 20, he says, if they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. But if they kept my word, they'll also keep yours. And these things, notice this, they will do to you for my name's sake or because of my name because they do not know the one who sent me. A couple things I want you to see here. There is just one small glimmer of hope in this super depressing passage and that is when Jesus says at the end of verse 20, if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. In other words, Jesus acknowledges that there are some people who will listen and obey, they will trust in Jesus, right? There are some. So don't get too discouraged. There are people who will respond positively by trusting in Jesus. That's the good news. But he reminds us once again that there are many who will reject. But the other thing I want you to see, this is key here in verse 21. He says, all these these things they will do to you for my name's sake, or because of my name, because they do not know the one who sent me. The thing I want you to see here in these verses, as you're going out, following Jesus in a fallen world, I hope one of the things you're doing is sharing, people, sharing with people the gospel, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. There will be some who respond positively by trusting in Jesus. There will be others who respond negatively by rejecting him. But what you need to realize is that when you share that message, they're not actually rejecting you, they're rejecting him. In my own life, I find myself hesitant to share the gospel because it feels like they're rejecting me, but Jesus says they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me, and ultimately they're rejecting the one who sent me, right? But again, what we see here is Jesus is the most polarizing person the world has ever seen, and every human being is gonna be split across the lines of what do you do with Jesus? Do you love him or do you hate him? Do you love him or do you hate him? And then notice in verses 22 through 24, Jesus goes on to say, he says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin, or you could translate that as guilt, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not come among them, done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned, but now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. Uh, Let me explain a couple things here, these words of Jesus, because it can be perhaps a little confusing. Uh, Notice Jesus says this. He says, if I had not come, then they would not have sin. And if I had not done the works which I did, then they would not have sin. Now, Jesus definitely does not mean that if he never 
showed up on the scene, then everybody is declared righteous. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Um, In the Old Testament, the righteousness of God was revealed through the law. And people were deemed righteous or unrighteous by faith in the coming Messiah, but a righteousness was determined by the law. God's righteousness was defined in the law. But now, Jesus is saying, now that I have shown up, righteousness is personified in me. In other words, he's the new standard of righteousness. People are always saved by grace through faith, but now the demonstration of God's righteousness has shifted from the old covenant to the new in the person of Jesus. Simply put, Jesus is now the new standard of righteousness, the true standard of God's righteousness. He is now the polarizing person, again, that divides the righteous from the unrighteous depending on what they do with him. And so let me pause right here for just a second and ask you this. Those of you here in this room, those of you watching online, what are you trusting in for righteousness? What is the standard of righteousness that you use? Typically in the world, we like to compare ourselves to other people, right? As long as I'm better than that guy or better than that person, then I'm a pretty good person. But the bad news that we see in Scripture is that true righteousness, the standard is the very righteousness of God that is Jesus. And compared to him, all of us, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's not a single righteous person, not a single one. Scripture's very clear on that. But the good news of the gospel is that for the one who has faith in Jesus, God declares them righteous, not because of anything you do, but because of what Jesus has already done. And to the one who has faith in Jesus, when God looks on you, he actually sees the very righteousness of his son. This is the best news of all. And if you've never put your faith in Jesus, I'd encourage you to do it right where you are. Finally, take a look at verse 25, how we're going to end this section this morning. Jesus, continuing this hate imagery, says, but they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Here Jesus is quoting from the book of Psalms, chapter 35. But he's basically showing that this hatred, once again, should not be surprising because it was predicted. Psalm chapter 35, God predicts in prophecy uh, that they have hated him without a cause. That Jesus is the perfect example of the righteous sufferer, the one the world rejects. So here in this second section, this morning we see that people hated Jesus. Truly people continue to hate Jesus. And people hate followers of Jesus. What I want you to see here And Jesus' words about the hatred from the world is, this world truly is not our home. This world is broken. One day Jesus is going to come and he's going to fix this world that we have broken. But as it is right now, this fallen world in which we live, this corrupted world system in which we live, it's broken and this is not our home. And yet, A.W. Tozer reminds us that people think of the world not as a battleground but as a playground. 
We often live as though this world is not a battleground, but it's a playground. We get far too comfortable here. C.S. Lewis wisely reminds us in Mere Christianity that this is enemy-occupied territory. This is enemy-occupied territory. And if you're a follower of Jesus, this fallen world system in which we live hates you. So as you look at both of these sections, number one and number two on your outline, we see this reminder. Jesus tells his disciples over and over again, I want you to love one another as I have loved you. And then when you see the reason, number two on your outline, because the world is going to hate you as it has hated him. In other words, Christians need to be united together by our love for one another because the world hates us. Again, this is kind of a depressing message. But, as we turn the pages into the book of Acts, and I do want you to flip over there. As we flip the pages into the book of Acts, and also beyond the book of Acts into the uninspired history of the church, the encouraging thing that we see is Jesus' words here in John chapter 15 play out exactly as Jesus describes, no surprise. And there's much that we can learn in this love and hate motif Jesus develops as we look into church history. I want you to flip over to the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, uh, we, we really threw out the book of Acts, uh, flipped it to Acts chapter 8, verse 1, and as you're turning there, let me just say that as you look at the book of Acts, there's really two parallel stories that are told throughout the book of Acts. On the one hand, you see this story of the increase in persecution against the followers of Jesus. You can look at the book of Acts in a really depressing way because over and over again, persecution increases and it gets really, really bad. People start dying because of their faith in Jesus. And so on the one hand, the book of Acts tells the story of the increased persecution against followers of Jesus. But on the other hand, the book of Acts is kind of an encouraging story. Because even as the church is getting persecuted, you see these progress reports throughout the book of Acts that the church continued to increase over and over again. That even with the persecution of the world, nothing stops this global movement of followers of Jesus around the Roman Empire. And so really there's these two parallel stories throughout the book of Acts. And for example, Acts chapter 8 verse 1, uh, this is when we first meet Saul who will become Paul. And Acts chapter 8 verse 1 says that on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except for the apostles. In other words, persecution increased hugely. Followers of Jesus were persecuted. They were tortured. They were put to death at times because of their faith in Jesus. So on the one hand, this is kind of a depressing story. But then I want you to flip back to chapter five. At the end of chapter five, the last three verses, even in the context of this suffering and persecution, notice what happens. Acts chapter five, verses 40 through 42 The apostles are drugged before the council there, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, and it says in verse 40, they took his advice, and notice this, after calling the apostles in, they, these are the the council, the Jewish leaders, flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. 
But then notice what happens, verse 41. They went on their way from the presence of the council, notice, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, notice what they did. They kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Isn't that amazing? I'll be honest with you. This is a verse I understand what the words say. I'm not sure experientially I quite get it. That the early church, they were brought in, they were flogged, and commanded not to speak anymore the name of Jesus. And after receiving their beating, they left, they rejoiced that they were considered worthy to suffer for his name, and then they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ every day in the temple and from house to house. It's amazing. These parallel stories you see in the book of Acts of the persecution of the church and yet the spread of the gospel at the same time. And once the book of Acts closes, we have to then turn to church history and take a look at the uninspired writings of the early church to see how this plays out. And emperor after emperor, as things began to go south in the Roman Empire, Emperor after emperor began to blame Christians for all the problems. Uh, Nero in 64, a fire spread throughout Rome and Nero blamed Christians. He said, they're the ones who started it and a bunch of Christians were gathered up and they were brought in and were killed. And it was probably during this time that Peter and Paul were martyred because of their faith. And yet over and over again, as persecution grew, so did Christianity. More and more people came to believe in, to love, and to trust in Jesus. And one of those people was a man by the name of Tertullian. I've talked about Tertullian before. Tertullian was a lawyer who became a follower of Jesus, a Christian. And he became really the leading theologian and defender of the faith. And listen to what he says about the spread of Christianity. Even in the midst of all of this persecution, he says, Christ's name is extending everywhere, believed everywhere, reigning everywhere, adored everywhere. Over and over again, as persecution within the Roman Empire increased, so did the name of Jesus. So did the name of Jesus. In his most famous work, Tertullian says this, he says, if the Tiber reaches the walls, if the Nile does not rise to the fields, if the sky doesn't move or if the earth does, if there's famine or if there is plague, then the cry at once is the Christians to the lion. What Tertullian is highlighting is that there in the Roman Empire, every single problem was ultimately blamed on Christians. Because in the Roman way of thinking, the Roman gods controlled the world. And if something was wrong in the world, then the gods must be angry. And the reason the gods are angry is because Christians don't worship the Roman gods. They only bow their name to Jesus. They only worship at his name. And so anytime something went wrong in the Roman Empire, the cry was, Tertullian says, the Christians to the lion. Kill him. Again, this is, on the one hand, kind of a depressing message. But on the other hand, not so much. Because we see Jesus' promise that nothing will prevail against his church fulfilled. 
There's nothing that's going to stop this global movement of people who love and worship and trust in Jesus. And so what's my point of this history lesson? Listen, every time I open the newspapers or you open the newspapers, it's very clear that the world is changing. And at times, there's reason to be concerned, but it's not, however, time to panic. Because what Christians have gone through for thousands of years, and even now around the world, what is constantly happening is that God's word continues to prevail. That more and more people are falling in love with Jesus. That more and more people are turning to him in faith. The thing you and I have to resist is to try to combat evil with evil. But to, as Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I'm not a prophet. I'm not claiming to predict the future. I have no idea what's going to happen. But the day very well may come, even here in the U.S., when Christianity no longer has its place in our society. That may happen. But what we see here in John chapter 15 is if that does happen or when that happens, it shouldn't be a surprise. Jesus said, they're going to hate you because they hated me. The question is, are we going to love one another as Jesus has loved us? And are we going to love even those who may hate us in return? Ed Stetzer says you can't hate people and engage them with the gospel at the same time. You can't war with people and show the love of Jesus. You can't be both outraged and on mission. And that's what I want us to see here in John chapter 15. There on the top of your outline in the backside, I've given you your application question for this week, but this is really it. Uh, Do you expect to be hated by the world? (laughs) This fallen world system in which we live, why or why not? And how can you prepare yourself to encounter hatred from the world? And how should you respond towards those who reject Jesus? And listen, to close, I've got just three kind of major points or summary ideas that I want to leave you with as we prepare ourselves to follow Jesus in a fallen world, a fallen world. There's three major ideas from John 15 I want to leave you with. Number one, I want you to understand there's a difference between picking a fight and enduring persecution, right? There's a difference between picking a fight, which we're not called to do, and enduring persecution when it does come. Number two, there's a difference between loving the people of the world and becoming like the world. We're not called to separate from the people of the world. We're called to engage them with the gospel, to tell them the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. There's a difference between loving the people of the world and becoming like the world, which is dangerous. Romans 12. And the third thing is we should fear being ignored more than we fear being persecuted. We should fear being ignored by unbelievers more than we fear being persecuted. In other words, we can't lose our voice because we're not loving people. When they turn a deaf ear to us because we've become worldly ourselves, that's a major problem. 
We should fear being ignored more than we fear being persecuted. To close, to try to wrap up this message and to end on more of a high note than a depressing note, um, I want to read to you something I've read with you, to you before. It's one of my favorite writings from the early church. It's called the Epistle to Diognetus. And this early church writing is a description of the reputation that Christians had in the early church. A description of the amazing reputation that followers of Jesus had in the early church. And I want to read this to you to show you that this can be done well. In the epistle to Diognetus, it says, They, Christians, live each in his native land, but as though they're not really at home there. They dwell on earth, but they're citizens of heaven. They obey the laws that men make, but their lives are better than the laws. They love all men, but are persecuted by all. And then notice this, those who hate them can give no reason for their hatred. In a word, what the soul is to the body, Christians are to the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this tremendous responsibility that as we navigate through what it is to follow Jesus in a fallen world, we can expect to be hated by this fallen world system in which we live. We can expect hardship. We can expect persecution. And God, I pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who this is a daily reality. God, help us. As we try to make sense of the culture in which we live, the world in which we live, help us by your spirit to love one another as Jesus has loved us. That greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. God, help us to love one another with a supernatural kind of love that people would know that we are your disciples by our love for one another. Help us, we ask. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.